Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and our special guest today is no stranger to your ears. She is part of the Libertarian Christian Institute as a regular contributor, but she also has her own thing going over at MereLiberty.com. Her name is Carrie Baldwin. Carrie, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Doug, for having me. So you write for LCI and you're you're pretty active on social media and you are known by a lot of in, in our audience. I, I hope our audience also knows that, know that you have a website, mereliberty.com, and you've been really working hard. You've been, you and I have been talking about this, you know, for a few months on like what's in the works for you and you've got some pretty important things going on. And if our listeners haven't heard, I'd like for you to give us a little bit of a background on like what your website is, what's your gig, what's your, yeah. what do you do? Yeah. So I've had mereliberty.com since 2012. And the idea with Mere Liberty is that it's the content there is to challenge and rethink paradigms for politics, religion, and culture. So I write from a libertarian perspective. I write from a reformed theological perspective and the idea is, is to challenge paradigms and to think through things. So I tend to handle a lot of controversial topics. I'm probably best known for my abortion debate with Walter Block, but that's what Mere Liberty is, is all about. And over the past year, I've been developing some online courses, which are geared towards teaching basically the skills of critical thinking. And so I launched Mere Liberty courses last year. So that's what I've been working on. Awesome. So I know that one of the reasons that we're talking today is that you have an interest in helping, well, anybody really, but in, in many ways, kind of focusing on students, younger students, on critical thinking. Now, when I think of critical thinking, there are some associations that I make with that. Sometimes critical thinking means, you know, sitting down and logically puzzling out something. You know, I remember those like grids and stories that I used to do as a kid and like those like logic books where it's like, here's a story and you got to figure out who did it by doing, you know, deductive reasoning and stuff like that. So a lot of times there's associations with what critical thinking is for anybody in particular. And Lord knows we need a lot more critical thinking in our society lately about a lot of things. But how would you describe to somebody quickly what critical thinking is? Critical thinking to me is is just thinking analytically. But I asked this question on my Facebook page, uh, it's been a few weeks now, about what people think of when they hear the term critical thinking. And I got some really pretty jaded and cynical answers, more than I expected. I mean, you... You always like have what? This... Like what were people saying that were cynical? Well, I I can't say exactly. Like I can't quote. Well, them I mean, what was the spirit of it? Like what were they cynical about? It was it was sort of like you know it's it's that thing that you're supposed to do. Like academics, for example, somebody brought up how academics are supposed to be critical thinkers, and yet they don't like 
there's plenty of examples of quote unquote smart people or degreed people being completely unreasonable or coming up with some absolutely ridiculous ideas. Uh And some of the other ones, uh, I think, were along the lines of, you know, it's all about trying to win and dominate your opponent and show them to be Mm. foolish. In fact, um, and you and I have, have talked a little bit about this. There's one person who has a YouTube channel. He uses the Socratic method. I use the Socratic method. But the way he uses the Socratic method is, I would say, a little bit more malicious sort of, you know, pins you in a corner. Or combative. Yes, very combative. That's not what critical thinking is. And so it and it occurred to me that what people have come to believe critical thinking is, is about you trying to get another person to think, right? Mm. It's about you trying to sort of force or coerce or manipulate another person into, I don't know, like having their light bulb turn on. Mm. And that's not what it is at all. Critical thinking is about improving your own thinking. And certainly we do that, especially with the Socratic method, we do that through through dialogue, which is just a conversation between two people. The Socratic method specifically uses open-ended questions to prompt dialogue. And you can use it for debate, but the the way that I use it specifically in my courses as a, is as a means of discovery or learning. So at any rate, the courses that that I've designed, they're much more focused on self-improvement and introspection and, you know, getting you to think about your own thoughts and evaluating your own thoughts and then strategizing about how to actually improve your own thinking. Mm, Okay. So it's not combative. In fact, the dialectic, which is sort of a a spinoff or an offshoot of the Socratic method, is learning how to debate through dialogue. And the best example that I can give of that are like Jordan Peterson's debates with like Sam Harris or Zizak, and I forget his last name, but he was- the, Oh, that's, the a, that's a tough name. I know who you're talking about. Yeah, he's the famous socialist. But if you watch those debates, what Jordan Peterson is doing in those debates, he's having a dialogue with his opponent. He's not trying to squash them like a bug. He is using dialogue in order to understand their position better so that he can improve his own position. Mm. And so that's what critical thinking is. It's taking a genuine interest in ideas for the purpose of improving yourself. And that may be taking an interest in your opponent, Mm -hmm. or it may just be taking an interest in any idea generally that you want to learn about. But what if, okay, I'm going to get my defensiveness out for just a second, because I can imagine other listeners doing the same thing. But what if those ideas are truly stupid, like Marxism? Um, yeah. Like, what do you do if you like almost like, I know some people have an interest in, and and I do say this sort of tongue in cheek, but also there's a real seriousness behind it. I know some people are interested in opposing views such as a Marxist, you know, materialist, uh, outlook or perspective or worldview or what do you want to call it? That libertarians would be interested in, you know, kind of learning and studying it just so they understand what it is, or, or for right now, like critical race theory, right? Like, mm-hmm. while it's notoriously difficult to pin down what exactly it is, I'm a little bit interested in that. And it's, I'm honestly having a hard time being interested in it after even learning a little bit, because I'm like, this is ridiculously crazy. Like, what do I do now? Or maybe I just need to give up and let someone else do that work. But anyway, that's, that's yeah. my question. No, that's a great question. And I would answer it this way. 
the Socratic method or critical thinking, broadly speaking, if you're using it correctly, will either help you flesh out good ideas or flesh out bad ideas. So mm-hmm. when we come in contact with an idea or when, you know, when we interact with an idea, we're not, we don't necessarily know if it's right or wrong to begin with. And certainly Marxism is already sort of a trigger word. And so somebody probably has an opinion on it when they, when they hear that word or they have a sense of whether, whether it's good or bad. But what critical thinking helps you do is it helps you sort through what's good or bad about the idea that you're interacting with, right? Mm-hmm. So if we're talking about Marxism, and I do do this with, with my students, we will start to flush out some of the reasons why Marxism is a bad idea. So it's not simply to say, oh, this is a bad idea. It goes against the ideas of a free society. We actually get into a little bit about what Marx thought, what his, you know, the problem that he was trying to solve, uh, why he thought his uh, solution would solve the problem. And then we, th- we think through sort of the, the implications of his ideas with the high schoolers specifically. We go through the difference between socialism as a theory versus socialism in practice. Mm-hmm. And so we get to actually flesh out the idea of socialism or Marxism and understand why it's a bad idea. Mm-hmm. And so that's really going to give you a better understanding of, of what you're dealing with when you come in contact with somebody who promotes Marxism, not just so that you can defend yourself better, but so that you can understand the problems that they are trying to solve mm-hmm. and actually improve upon your own ideas by by you know, like we would we would want to use libertarianism to solve their problems, right? Mm-hmm. We would want yeah. to say, yes, you've identified a, a, a legitimate problem. The solution that socialism presents is doesn't work because of X, Y, and Z. But here, libertarianism actually solves it, and this is why because of A, B, and C. Mm. Okay. Well, it sounds like there's a little bit of empathy involved here. Mm-hmm. Like it it relies on the person learning and listening and studying to be empathetic to, in, in this instance, in our example here, like the problem Marx was solving, you know, because then in the, at the end of the day, you could say, well, that's a bunch of garbage ideas, but my goodness, you know, given the tools that he had and his lack of economic knowledge, no wonder he came to that conclusion. It's too bad that, you know, not everybody has realized that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, one of the things and probably one of the unique attributes of my own course is something I call critical feeling. Actually, it's not my term. It's a term that is coined by a psychologist named Rolf Reber. It's the idea of using your feelings or your sense perceptions as tools to guide your, your thinking process. Mm-hmm. And that requires us mm-hmm. to get in touch with our feelings and identify them and figure out why we're feeling them which is something that isn't typically taught with with critical thinking. Yeah. Lots of times we're we're told that analysis happens um absent feeling and that feelings just sort of get in the way and I think that I think that our culture has as a result of of this idea that analysis is absent emotion. Mm-hmm. We now really don't know how to process through emotions and I think that's part of the reason why things like social media get so emotionally charged. We haven't figured out how to connect our feelings with our thoughts. 
Yeah. I'm tempted to insert a libertarians don't have feelings joke, but I know and you know very well that many of us feel very deeply about the issues, which is why we're passionate about ending the drug war and letting immigrant children come here <laughs> for a good life. So, right. yeah, I missed joke opportunity because it wasn't succinct enough. But uh, no, it's very <laughs> important that we that we process our emotions because, I mean, there are, I mean, my goodness, we all know that we end up in arguments with people. And sometimes you're like, whoa, they just responded in such a way that's like completely irrational. Well, it's rational in the sense that like they just reacted with their emotions. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't they didn't react with a sense of, you know, hey, we're having a conversation here. Yeah. I, I remember one time I was watching, um, I don't know if you know who Alex Epstein is. He uh, wrote The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is very interested or I should say very invested in having conversations with people and he's very good at not uh, escalating the emotion and when people begin to escalate the emotion he knows how to like sort of reduce that and he's like talked to people on the streets and there's like videos of him on YouTube so yeah it's it's really important to understand like the emotional reaction to things Um, even if you do get you know kind of emotional and passionate I've, I've personally noticed that sometimes when I get passionate about things I start to lose the data that I mm-hmm. know what I'm reading or, you know, interviewing somebody for podcasts and I've written stuff down or whatever, you know, when I'm debating, it's like all the drug war statistics or all of the immigration statistics that I've learned over the years have essentially just gone out the window because I'm acting out of, you know, my emotional brain, if you will. Right. Yeah. Well, and, you know, just from a Christian perspective, I would say, you know, God gave us emotions for a reason and it doesn't make sense that we would suppress them. But we do, That's right. <laughs> we do have to know how to use them, right? Because there's like fear, for example. Fear can either be something that is rational and self-preserving, or it can be completely irrational and, and anxious-ridden. Mm-hmm. And you don't know which one is which until you've actually thought through why you're feeling the way you do. Yeah. You know, if you go, and I use this example with my students, if you go camping in the woods and you hear a rustling in in the bushes behind your tent and you peek outside and there's a bear, well, you're you're probably going to experience some fear. And it's justified, right? Probably panic at that point, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But then, you know, anxiety, for example, is sometimes having an, an unjustified fear. And I don't want to like, I don't want to peg people down as, as being irrational because they experience anxiety and because uh, I experience anxiety. This is something that I live with. And so I've had to work through it. And, you know, one of the methods of that they that they use for grounding when you're having, say, a panic attack is asking yourself questions about the world around you. And it sort of calms the anxiety. So using questions, which is the Socratic method to evaluate your your own emotions and why you're feeling the way you do helps sort of point you in 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 a direction in terms of improving your own thinking about whatever it is that you know yeah. you're anxious about or you know whatever you're feeling at the moment. So we we've been talking a lot about how critical thinking helps us understand, you know, marxism or an opposing view or something that would otherwise feel combative, but if, if we really step back for a second, we realize that critical thinking actually is <laughs> useful for all of life. Mm-hmm. Um, like learning how to put something together or repair something or, you know, what, troubleshoot something, right? Yeah. 
you know, so what, how does it affect other things other than, you know, understanding the opponent? Right. Well, and this is the, this is the big thing, because if we actually go back to Socrates, who's, who's the one who sort of started this method, his idea was that wisdom starts from understanding your lack of knowledge, understanding your, you know, your, I don't know. And I say your, your, I don't know is the compass rose of discovery, right? So by sort of evaluating, if you can ask questions about yourself and what you do and do not know, then where you come to your, I don't know, that's where you become aware of the direction that you need to take in order to learn something new. So again, that, that helps strategize improvements in thinking, but thinking is also, it also precedes action and it's related to human action in that way. And so Mises even talked about this. He, he talks about how discovery is a necessary part of life, but thinking precedes action. And if we're going to take actions in the world, right, then we need to be able to discover things about the world. And in order to discover things about the world, or at least interpret them correctly, we need to know how to think well. And so critical thinking is really fundamental to learning. I think one other mistake that tends to occur, at least in our conventional education paradigm, is that critical thinking is secondary to learning. It's sort of it's an extracurricular activity for the particularly nerdy student, right? <laughs> um, and that's not what it is. It's very fundamental to the learning process itself. Yeah, yeah. So I want to latch on to your comment here about wisdom because I, I'm, an, I'm a built-in skeptic or cynic. I'm also, like, that's my default mode whenever I encounter ideas that I'm like, mm, what now? Mm-hmm. Um, which, which is fine. I mean, you know, especially when it comes to like, you know, the government telling you things, of course, that's a great default to have. At the same time, I've also, I grew up like really, really sure of a lot of what I believed. And then I started realizing in college through, you know, other Christians that not all my beliefs had synchronicity, if you will. They, they weren't all compatible or coherent or whatever it is. And so, you know, things shifted for me a little bit. And I'm a few decades beyond college, and I am starting to, <laughs> I'm starting to almost realize that I really don't know a whole lot. Like I remember when I left college, one of my professors said, and I, actually, I think I heard this also in grad school, like you come here knowing, knowing everything and you leave here knowing very little. Mm-hmm. And part of that is just the process of wisdom. It's like, well, of course you've learned something and you've, you've, you've gained valuable skills, hopefully. Um, and you've matured at least for so years. Um, but I look back and I'm like, okay, so I'm sitting here thinking, I want to learn something new. All right, I can go through and learn all about this thing, whatever it might be. What if I'm not convinced by something and yet other people are saying, oh yeah, but we, you know, we've used critical thinking skills and may not be pitching it this way, but you know, they've, they've seemingly gone through a lot of critical thinking skills or are good thinkers, but I'm just not convinced. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I've actually asked you a question in there. Maybe I've just described an experience. Like, how do we arrive at a choice when we can simply say, you know, wisdom is me saying, well, I just don't know. Yeah. Well, I'm really glad that you brought that up because I think we have a tendency to think that the best critical thinkers have a great amount of knowledge that they've acquired. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily the case. There are six stages of thinking. 
And at the very bottom is the unreflective thinker. So we all think, every single one of us think, some of us just think better than others. And so the unreflective thinker is the thinker who doesn't reflect on his own thoughts. He doesn't try to consider the possibility that he might be wrong or consider other alternatives or really strategize in, in any sort of way to improve upon his thinking. And then you have sort of a, you know, graduated step by step. You've got the challenged thinker who's just discovered that, you know, the possibility that they might be wrong, mm. which that can be, I mean, it's a, it's a challenge because you're moving from the stage of completely unreflective to having to be open to the possibility that what you believe is not true. And that that can be very scary and, and anxiety ridden for people. But the stages of critical thinking beyond that are the beginner and then the practicing thinker and then the advanced thinker and then the accomplished thinker. And all these are, are different degrees of practicing the skills of thinking on a regular basis. So the beginner has to really intentionally sit down and say, okay, today I'm going to you know, work on this skill in this way. I'm going to think about this idea but they don't always do it, right? A practicing thinker is strategized some of those steps. Uh, they do it a little bit more frequently than the beginner thinker. The practicing thinker is you know, practicing those skills on a much more regular basis. But these are skills like self-evaluation, asking good questions, gathering information, making sure that you're using credible sources, like none of that has anything to do with acquired knowledge and, and mm. knowing something, right? Along the way, we do acquire knowledge or we at least come to agree with an idea. But if we're really practicing, if we're really you know, practicing our, our thinking skills, over time, your, your positions are going to change, right? Um, in fact, they say it's, it's like a red flag if you come across somebody who claims to be a great thinker and they've never changed their mind on something, mm-hmm. right? Because we're always coming in contact with new information and we don't understand the import of that information until much, much later. Mm. So it's a constantly ever-evolving sort of thing. So critical thinking isn't about acquiring knowledge, although you do. It's about practicing skills. And the more practiced you get, the more intuitive this this practice gets. You don't have to sit down intentionally and do it. It just becomes a, a part of your everyday life. Got it. And, and you mentioned earlier, as before I went on this wisdom uncertainty comment here, that it relates to human action. You were talking a little bit about Mises and how you know we think before we act. Is there any more to say on that? There's probably a, quite a bit. To say on that, um, I think... Is there anything more you want to say on that? <laughs> yeah. um, I think probably the key thing, you know, one of the... So I've had this, this Liberty Seminar for the past year, um, and that's where I'm guiding students in learning the, the skills of critical thinking by having a dialogue about principles of the free society. But I've gone and I've created this new course called Guiding Critical Thought, which is aimed at teachers and parents who are interested in using this method with their own kids, maybe, you know, in homeschool or just at home in the classroom, that sort of thing. And uh, one of my lessons in there is really helping 
teachers and parents make a connection between what their kids do or what the, their kids are, are going to do, say, when they, they graduate, and their thought processes, right? Making that, that connection between learning and how they're going to take that learning and, and turn it into action when they become adults. So I do have an entire lesson that's um, that talks about the connection between thinking and thinking well, and then human action. So if humans acting in the world is we want humans to act a particular way, productive, moral, you know, uh, in cooperation with one another, what we really need are thinkers, people who are thinking through and thinking well about things. So I do make that connection in, in one of my lessons in Guiding Critical Thought. So your is the Guiding Critical Thought, is it geared more toward the high schooler or is it geared more toward like adults? Yeah, so that's a good question. So Guiding Critical Thought is a course that probably an adult would take, but it's aimed at helping you teach others how to think, you know, think well about ideas. So maybe... Mm-hmm. You know, if you're a parent and you've got a middle schooler, you can use this course. If you're a parent and you have a high schooler, you can use this course. Let's say you have a a podcast that is trying to teach things or you try to, uh, you know, you have your own courses that you're developing. You can use this course. I do have uh, in the course, I talk about scaffolding. It's scaffolding the method, the Socratic method according to like age and development, mm-hmm. you know, like for the younger ages, for example, what they're doing at that point is they're using a lot of their sensory processes in order to gain information about the world. And you're using the Socratic method to help them engage their senses in the world. And so I have a lesson on that. So really, it doesn't matter what age your kids are, you can benefit from this course. And the interesting thing that I've done with the course is I, I teach this course using the Socratic method. So you're going, by you taking the course, you're going to improve your own thinking skills. You're actually learning through experience. You're learning through experiencing the Socratic method itself so that you can turn around and Mm. use it with your kids or your students. Awesome. Yeah. So I, I asked you before we began, or as we were sort of prepping for this conversation, if we could sort of do like a sample run through something you might do with students. And, and you said that would be fun. So I think in the remaining minutes here, why don't we go ahead and do that? Yeah. So when people hear that the Socratic method is just a dialogue, they're a little confused because that's pretty broad. And this can come in uh, many forms, but... Probably the more fun way of doing it is with a thought experiment. And uh, libertarians, Austrian economists um, are probably familiar with the idea of Robinson Crusoe. So we're going to do a Robinson Crusoe thought experiment. All right. All right. So it's going to just start out. I'm going to ask you a question and I want you to answer. And I will ask you questions based on how you answer. All right, just listeners, just so you know, we did not rehearse this. Um, so if I come off looking foolish, you know, just forgive me or something. No, I'm kidding, but <laughs> you'll be fine. I'm in good. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you'll be fine. All right, so here's your question Doug, you find yourself shipwrecked on a deserted island. You have the choice of trying to escape the island or 
you know, finding some shelter for yourself and making a new life. What do you do? Mm. Um, Well, I'm going to, I'm going to stay and find shelter first. That would be kind of my first instinct, a place to maybe like, I want to say call home or nest or something like that, like a place of safety that I can find. Okay. In case, case something happens. So what do you suppose are some, some threats that you might face on a deserted island? So what are you going to look for in your shelter? Uh, possibly weather would be the first thing, depending on where on the globe I've been deserted or I've crashed or whatever it is, um, or my spaceship back in time landed me, whatever. Um, this, uh, other things could be animals or even small insects, large insects, whatever. And then, of course, the sun. I would need, which would be part of weather, I suppose, in some way. Um, so, yeah, those would be the first few threats that I would think of. Okay. So, and what's the purpose of that shelter? I mean, yes, you're protecting yourself from these things, but why? Like, why do you need to do that? Um, hmm, that's, that's a really good question. I, I guess my instinct would be that I need to find a place that I can call my own. So that's like the first, like, okay, I need my place because I'm in a very foreign land. The other purpose would be, you know, depending on how much further I've thought, is like if I want to accumulate anything whatsoever, I would have to place put stuff that's safe that I can venture away. Okay. And would you like build your shelter or are you looking for something that's, you know, just sort of already exists in nature? Yeah. Um, you know, I would I would probably try to build a shelter myself. If I could, um, that would take a lot of time. So I'd probably find something that takes me very little time at first and then work my way up or try to configure that natural space or safety area, you know, kind of improve upon it. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you this, Doug. You've arrived on this island, you're shipwrecked on this island, and you decided you're going to stay there and you're going to build a shelter. Mm -hmm. What do the right to do that? What gives me the what? The right. The right to do that? Um, I don't know if I'm making a rights claim. I'm just trying to survive at this level. Okay. <laughs> um, no one else is disputing me, I would say, at least to start. I'm like, well, as far as I know at the moment, no one has disputed on my, my presence on this island. Right. Yeah, and we, we, we do uh, talk about this idea of homesteading where we find things in nature, untouched, unused things in nature. And if we mix our labor with them, then they become ours. Um, and so we do have a right to them. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, let's suppose that uh, you've, you've made your shelter. What, what do you do next? Mm, take a nap? No, I'm kidding. Um... <laughs> you might. <laughs> well, after building a shelter, you know, I would... Well, I'd look for food. Um, that could be by, you know, looking for food that's uh, possibly from the wreckage. There's a possibility there. And, you know, I guess to some extent, I probably have gone through the wreckage and accumulated what I could, you know, to figure out if there's any anything of use. But uh, once I've sort of sheltered, yeah, finding food, whether or, or kind of assessing what skills I might have to uh, find food. Uh, as it is right now in my mind, I don't think I could fish with my bare hands. Mm -hmm. And I also don't think I could hunt with my bare hands. Okay. So right now I'm pretty hungry. Okay. 
So imagine, imagine this island, and I'm I'm going to say this is you know this is down near the equator, you know, so it's Caribbean esque, and you know you've just pointed out you don't you don't really have the knowledge or skill to fish with your hands or hunt with your hands. So what kinds of food might still be available to you? Uh, possibly plants. Maybe I could get some coconut uh, if I wanted to. Perfect. Okay, so. You, you find this coconut tree and, you know, you notice that you have to climb up to the top to knock down the coconut. And so you go ahead and do that and you spend several days. Uh, and let's say it takes you, you know, 30 minutes to climb up and knock down a coconut and then climb down. That sounds about right. And then you eat the the coconut, you know, because now you're you're tired. You eat the coconut to have energy again. But now you're out of a coconut. And you have to find a new one. Mm. What do you do next? This this is the part where I kind of know the answer ahead of time because I've studied under Bob Murphy. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, being being the kind of person that I am. Okay, so that comment aside, being the kind of person I am, I like to do the most amount of work with the least amount of effort. And sometimes I actually spend more effort trying to find the least amount of effort than I could just do the work. Uh, but I would probably start finding ways to optimize my acquisition of coconuts. So maybe I, you know, forego getting a coconut and then eating it and drinking from it. And I might accumulate a whole bunch and then eat or consume less over time so that, you know, I can take a Sabbath. <laughs> six days of coconut tree climbing. Or I could do something like um, find something that approximates a stick or a pole and try to knock them down from the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could do that. Yeah, so you made a really good point I want to draw out. You talked about how if you can you know, maximize uh, the amount of coconuts you can get in the shortest amount of time, then you free your time to be able to, you said, you know, take a Sabbath. What's the difference between, let's say for your Sabbath, you want to go swimming. You want to just, you know, go enjoy, go enjoy some of the water, go swimming. Uh, What's the difference between the effort that you put into swimming and the effort that you put into collecting coconuts? Uh, one produces something that can be used and the other is simply for pure enjoyment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we call that, uh, so when you're, when you're producing something, you're laboring and when you're just enjoying life, you're leisuring. So how much labor do you need to do before you can start enjoying some leisurely time? Right. Yeah, well, depending on our skills on the island or my skills on the island, uh, it could be quite a bit of time before leisure becomes, you know, something I can expect within the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. But is it something that, that motivates you? Me? Yes, very much so. Yeah. So why is that motivating? Because I don't like to work. Okay. <laughs> What else? Well, there there could be. I mean, there could be things that I want to do that are that are not. They don't. They don't create. They they're not create. I don't want to say the word creative, but like there could be leisure activities that I want to do just for this for the pure enjoyment of it. Right. Um. It it not just because oh I don't want to work and therefore I just want to sit and do nothing. I don't mean that. Right. But I would rather do things that bring enjoyment. 
And in fact, I would say that if there are, if for some reason I would enjoy doing something other than coconut bashing and acquisition, that I that would also feed me. I would do that instead of the coconuts. Mm-hmm. Sorry, those are two answers in one. But anyway, yeah, now that works. So okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you one final question, and we'll we'll wrap up our little Socratic session. Now that you've thought through the island and you know what you would do to survive, what parallels, what or what things in common does the island have with life, you know, real life right now in society today? Oh wow, that's a big leap. Um, well, I mean, in my daily life, I can't leisure unless I have the ability to survive on less than, I don't know, whatever 24 hours a day is minus whatever the amount of work that I am able to do. Um, You know, if I were to, and this is probably jumping to a much broader picture, but like I know that I can work 40 to 50 hours a week instead of 60 to 70 hours a week in the society that I live in just because we've, we've gone from the Robinson Crusoe phase to high production, Mm -hmm. you know, where we have a society that can, you know, have a lot of leisure time. Yeah, well, there are still some other parallels. I mean, on the island, you might be working for for coconuts, right? Mm -hmm. And here in normal society, you're working for a paycheck, right? Oh, right. Yeah, Yeah. right. So um, I'm spending my day laboring, mm -hmm. you know, mostly laboring and partly leisuring, just like I would on the island. Sure. So at any rate, so that's an example of a Socratic dialogue. We can take it, uh, I can take it a million different ways, but I actually, I use that particular lesson with my high school students to sort of reinforce life skills and things that they need to understand as adults so that they can take care of themselves when they turn 18 and, and it's time to move out and live on their own. Nice. You know, it's interesting. What I what I noticed in all of that was you only told me information when you were identifying things that had already been discussed. Yeah. Like you told me what laboring and leisuring was, and then there was one earlier earlier on, I forget. But um, there wasn't a like, yeah, here's the answer you're really trying to go. You weren't like leading me to the answer you wanted. You were accepting the answers that I gave, mm-hmm. labeling it for what it was. Um yeah, no, that was that was good. Yeah. So if our listeners have children or they themselves would like to get your Guiding Critical Thought course, what is that experience going to be like and where can they go to get it? So good question. So the Liberty Seminar and, the, and Guiding Critical Thought are two different courses. Liberty Seminar involves uh, 15 weeks, so per semester, of weekly lessons that uh, that you have access to at the beginning of the week, every Monday, those are self, the lessons are self-paced. And then we have a one hour or 40, really 45 minute uh, Zoom call discussions with me and other students in the age group. So there's middle school, high school, and adult. And that is uh, Liberty Seminar. Uh, registration for that opens just three times a year. And by the time I think we we have this published, my summer semester will have uh, just gotten started. So the next time to register for that will be in the fall. But you can go to courses.mereliberty.com 
and find the Liberty Seminar and there should be a waiting list there where you can get on and get on the email list and, and be notified of when registration opens. The Guiding Critical Thought course is uh, somewhat different. Um, the lessons are also self-paced and we do have Zoom calls, but they work a little bit differently. So in Guiding Critical Thought, there are four modules with 22 lessons, three self-evaluations, and um, one thing that I haven't mentioned yet is the, the fourth module is learning how to use writing as a form of thinking. And so if you participate in the writing portion, there's, there's an essay that you write and you turn in. I don't grade the writing or anything like that, but it's a demonstration that you went through the course and you'll receive a course cert certification if you choose. But uh, that course, all the lessons are self-paced and we do have a Socratic session once a month on the first Saturday of every month. It's two hours. Um, it's Socratic style. The students that are joining that, like I said, are you know private school teachers, uh, homeschoolers, basically people who are trying to not just learn the method, but implement it. And so, you know, we do a lot of discussions about troubleshooting. Uh, questions about the course itself for clarification. We work through many thought experiments and that sort of thing. So the lessons for guiding critical thought are self-paced, but we do have monthly Zoom calls. And that is ongoing enrollment. You can register right now. Since that course is still new, it's in the beta version, and I'm offering it at a very discounted price of $197 for the, for the whole course. After the beta testing, I expect that price to go up, but I haven't I haven't worked out uh, that price yet, but you can also find that at courses.mereliberty.com and find the menu item guiding critical thought. Awesome. So get in now before you, it goes up in price. Yes. Awesome. Well, Carrie, I appreciate you coming on and explaining to us a little bit more about critical thinking, why it's important. And of course, I hope our listeners will check out mirrorliberty.com and sign up for Guiding Critical Thought because, yeah, we all need it. <laughs> and we need to lead more people to it. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Doug. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.